Good evening and welcome to the April 2021 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, you know, the animus toward the transgender community in this country continues to be absolutely disturbing. And we've reported on Outbeat News the alarming number of transgender people that continue to be murdered each year. And as we shared last month, this violence is equally targeted at transgender men and women. New legislation in states across the country to prevent transgender people from participating in things like sports or accessing restrooms is being passed and actually signed into law. But why? I think all of this animus is fueled by fear and just a general lack of understanding about what being transgender really means. My guest tonight is Dr. Sherman Lease. He's a leading doctor specializing in transgender-related surgeries. And he's going to break down this topic for us and explain how the medical profession is approaching gender dysphoria today. So stay with us. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio news for this Sunday, April 25th, 2021. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio news for the week of April 25th, 2021. LGBTQ Nation reports Kellogg's has a new cereal just in time for Pride Month coming up in June. It's called Together with Pride, and it's coming to stores in May. The cereal will feature rainbow-colored cereal hearts in the colors of the Pride rainbow flag, and they'll even be edible glitter. The mascots of various Kellogg cereal brands like Tony the Tiger and Toucan Sam appear on the box because they're, quote, together with pride. Longtime readers of LGBTQ Nation will remember that Kellogg's had another cereal by a similar name for Pride in 2019. It was called All Together. It was in a big box that contained smaller boxes of cornflakes, Fruit Loops, and other cereals. They were all together just like LGBTQ, but that cereal cost $19.99 a box. This time the cereal will actually be in some major chain grocery stores and cost a more reasonable $3.99. For every box purchase, Kellogg's is donating $3 to GLAD. And here locally, according to the Bay Area Reporter, a number of Californians are among the inaugural class being inducted into the LGBTQ Hall of Fame on May 2nd by the LGBTQ Victory Institute. A total of 20 LGBTQ elected officials, appointed officials, and candidates are being honored for their lasting impact on LGBTQ history. The list includes lesbian and former San Francisco supervisor Roberta Attenberg, who's 70 years old. She went on to be the first openly LGBTQ presidential appointee to a Senate-confirmed position. And a gay former assembly speaker, John Perez, the first openly LGBTQ speaker in the state legislature. San Franciscan James Hormel, who became the first LGBTQ U.S. ambassador in 1999 with his appointment to Luxembourg, will also be inducted. Deceased gay icons Jose Saria, who died in 1961, and Harvey Milk will both be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And here in Sonoma County, Face to Face announced last week a new partnership with QCare, a telehealth service provider that will enable Face to Face to directly offer PrEP to all people who come into the Face to Face office. With PrEP, people who are HIV negative can take medication once a day to significantly reduce their risk of getting infected if exposed to HIV. Executive Director Sarah Brewer stated that despite the success of marketing PrEP to gay men, there's been less effort to inform the general public, and this has led to a huge disparity of awareness, access, and usage among different populations. 
especially those people of color, women, transgender individuals, people who inject drugs, and men who have sex with men who aren't integrated into the gay community. If you know someone or you yourself are interested in finding out more about PrEP, the face-to-face prevention team offers educational services that will walk you through each step, including virtual doctor's visits, a convenient at-home lab, and prescriptions delivered directly to your door. You can learn more by going to the face-to-face website at f2f.org. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. My guest tonight is Dr. Sherman Leese. He's board certified in general surgery and plastic and reconstructive surgery by the American Osteopathic Board of Surgery. He's an internationally known and well-respected surgeon, known for his exceptional surgical results and techniques. Early in his career after completing general surgery training as chief resident in surgery at Philadelphia's Albert Einstein Medical Center, Dr. Lees was awarded a prestigious fellowship in plastic surgery with world-renowned surgeons in Sweden and France. Dr. Lees has written numerous articles on his work and has been specializing now in transgender surgeries for decades. Dr. Lees, welcome to the show. Hi, Greg. Nice to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you. Uh, so much to learn uh, from you here. So I'm looking forward to this. But before we get in and really start talking about all of the all of the very fascinating things about the trans community, tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, you've obviously been doing this a long time. What drew you to this work with this community? Well, I started out as a plastic surgeon. I was trained in general surgery. I had another residency in plastic and reconstructive surgery. And... Um, I started practice back in 1974. Um, About two years into my practice, a local psychiatrist who was actually one of my teachers from medical school referred a patient to me. And the patient sat down in that chair that I'm looking at right now and um, told me that he wanted to have a gender reassignment um, procedure, a sex change operation. And I was surprised because to me, he looked like a regular guy to start with. And I said, well, that's, I'd be happy to help you, but I have no training in that at all. I've, I'm well trained in surgery, but I, I haven't had any training in, in uh, gender change surgery. Uh, I know a little bit about it, but not much. I've never seen the surgery and I've never really studied it. So I'll help you find somebody that does the surgery. And he said, forget it. There's no one around here that does it. And I'm not going to Thailand or Bulgaria to do the surgery. Um, but you have a good reputation as a plastic surgeon. And I figured if you found a technique that you were comfortable with, that you would do a good job because that's what everybody says you do, a good job or whatever you do. So I said, well, thank you, but I'm not sure. I'll tell you what, let me, let me have a couple of weeks to read. Make an appointment and come back in a couple of weeks and we'll talk again and I'll see if, I, if I'll be able to help you. Mm-hmm. Well, Fortunately, the techniques involved in gender reassignment surgery of all types um, are based on reconstructive surgery techniques. And if a surgeon is properly trained in facial surgery, chest surgery, general surgery, then he should be able to apply those surgical concepts to almost anything in those areas. 
Mm-hmm. We don't do brain surgery. We don't do heart surgery or lung surgery or kidney surgery, but we do all the skin and soft tissue surgery and some of the bones of the face and even hands, hand surgery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, the patient came back in a couple of weeks and we talked about it. I said, well, I did find a couple of techniques. Actually, it wasn't that much written in the literature at that time. I found a couple of techniques that I'm comfortable with, but they, each technique has some pros and cons to it. So let me explain them to you and see if you're comfortable, if you like the idea of one of them. And so we discussed it and uh, he chose the technique where we could go in and out of the hospital with one operation. The other procedure was a multi-staged operation. He would have required four or five different procedures. Mm-hmm. Heal up for a few weeks and come back and do another procedure. He'd go through this four or five times. No, I want to do it once and get it over with. And, and the downsides of that operation, it's not a problem for me. When can we do it? So we set it up at the hospital. We did the surgery. Uh, it was the first time that surgery was ever done at that hospital. And there were a lot of questions, a lot of interested people. And um, the surgery turned out fine. I'm still in touch with that patient. A lovely guy, got married. He was engaged at the time, got married and, and um, moved uh, to Florida where he still lives. And I'm still in touch with him. Whenever I give a lecture in Florida or attend a meeting, he always comes to my lectures. And if it's to a trans group, He'll come and answer questions. I always introduce him and he can answer questions. Having had the operation about 42 years ago, wow. he has, he's my longest term uh, post-operative patient. And he's very happy and he's very active in the trans community in Florida, especially for, for the trans men. Wow. So after that, I really didn't do another transgender surgery for about 20 years. I did a lot of reconstructive surgery, burns, cancers, and more and more aesthetic surgery. So I really became a specialist in cosmetic or aesthetic mm-hmm. surgery, all the typical procedures that you think of. Eyelids <clears throat> and facelifts and noses and breasts and tummies and lipo and all that business and Botox and all this stuff. <laughs> um, and then <clears throat> I guess it was about 16, 17, 18 years ago, um, someone was coming to me for an interview uh, to train in plastic surgery. I founded and directed a residency training program in plastic surgery now for about 35 years ago. And every year we bring in a couple of new residents and uh, one of the uh, young doctors that was finishing general surgery and wanted to do plastic surgery came for an interview and she said, Dr. Lee, she says, um, and I asked her why she wanted to take a plastic surgery residency. She said, because I want to specialize in transgender surgery and I want plastic surgical skills in order to do higher quality transgender surgery. I said, okay, fine. I said, well, you'll get those skills here, those finer skills and learn how to use do skin grafts and flaps and different suture techniques and all these concepts of reconstruction. And she says, by the way, Dr. Lee, she says, how come you're not doing transgender surgery? She said, you have a good reputation. You're supposed to be a really terrific surgeon, but how come you don't do transgender? I said, well, people don't come to me for that. They come to me for facelifts and noses and you know, breast surgery and lipo, things like that. She says, well, because they don't know who you are. I said, mm-hmm. actually, I did a case about 20 years ago, but I didn't focus on it. And that patient moved to Florida and, mm-hmm. and that was mm-hmm. it. Um, she, she says, well, you, uh, if you're interested, she says, you have to come to some of our meetings. We have conventions, we have conferences. We would love you to, to uh, come and do consultations and give talks. And um, she says, and you should have a website. Of course, now we're talking about, well, 16, 17 years sure. ago, 18 years ago, 
there was just they were just beginning to have websites. Cell phones didn't really it was just coming on the market. Oh, BlackBerry or whatever it was at that time. I said, well, I said, yeah, people say we should start to get into this digital business. And I mean, we had typewriters in the office. We didn't have computers. Now, I mean, hardly anyone knows what a typewriter is anymore. <laughs> um, so it was another world. So I said, well, I'll think about it. I said, it, it was interesting surgery. In that one case that I did turned out fine and the patient's very happy. She said, well, you could be a really important resource for our community because there are only three other surgeons in the whole United States who are doing this work. We need more people. People are going to Turkey and to uh, Bulgaria and to Thailand right. for surgery because they can't get on a list here. The, the, the small number of surgeons that we have are very busy. They don't have time to do everybody. They have waiting lists of one or two years long. I said, well, I'll, I'll certainly think about it. I said, I probably would want to go see what they're doing these days and watch the surgeon. She says, well, she said, I said, so we'll talk about it. Okay, next thing I knew, a week later, Marcy Bowers, who's a, a famous transgender surgeon, was in Philadelphia to talk to a, a GLBT center here to mm -hmm. give a talk. And um, I didn't even know we had such a center. And uh, she was here to give a talk. She said, I'd like you to have to meet my friend. Would you come to dinner and have dinner with us one night? I'd like you to meet somebody. Um, I had no idea who that was, really. I didn't want name. That name didn't mean a thing to me at the time. <clears throat> and we had dinner. And Marcy Bowers said to me, Dr. Lee, she says, you have terrific training. She says, there's nobody on the East Coast doing this surgery. I mean, nowhere, zero on the East Coast. There was one urologist in Florida who was doing a little bit of it, but really nobody was doing it. And uh, she swamped up and booked up for one or two years in advance. And there was another surgeon in Arizona that was busy. And there's one guy in Canada. And that was about this urologist in Florida. And that was it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> She said, why don't you come on out and spend a week with me? She said, and, you know, watch me do a few cases. We'll talk about it. And, and um, maybe you'll, you know, want to take care of all the people that want to do it on the East Coast. She says, you could do all the cases east of the Mississippi, and I'll have all the cases west of the Mississippi. And I'll never forget that she said that to me. I said, well, I said, look, I always enjoy visiting other surgeons because I always learn something when I visit another surgeon. So I said, I'll, I'll try to come out. So... About a month later, I found a few days I could get out and I went out to visit her. She was at that time in Trinidad, Colorado. Now she's in near San Francisco. And we spent a week together. We became friendly, actually. She's a lovely, lovely, lovely person. And she happens to be a trans girl herself mm -hmm. and was a surgeon. She actually is an OBGYN doctor. Right. She wasn't a plastic surgeon. So she just did the bottom surgery. And um, But we had a good week together. And I pretty much understood after I, I watched her do a few cases, I pretty much got the idea of the, and the concepts involved. And she said, you'll have no problem at all. She said, with your background, you'll have no, no trouble, you know, doing the surgery. And I came back and I got somebody to put a website together for me. And my resident and Marcy Bowers gave me a few of these meetings that I should attend. And I started going to meetings. Yeah, there were four or five a year in Boston and Florida and Atlanta and here and there in the Midwest. Midwest, there wasn't much. Um, University of Ohio did for a few years. And um, I came back and we, I started going to meetings and giving some talk. First, I just did, I watched other surgeons give some talks. And then an endocrinologist talk about the hormones. And then I made a website. And then all of a sudden people started coming and I gave, I went to meetings, I started doing consultations. And people just thought I was a little bit older. So I, 
and I had already been doing surgery for more than 20 years at that point. So I didn't look like I was just out of my training. In fact, I was training plastic surgeons. I was training a lot of plastic surgeons to do all kinds of plastic surgery and reconstructive surgery. So people started coming and we got good results and we take very good care of our patients. We really, I don't know actually anybody in the country that takes care of people the way we do here, my staff and myself, Mm. I see them several times a day. I have apartments upstairs from my office where they stay after surgery so I can see them once or wow. several times wow. a day. I drive my own patients up tomorrow. I just finished seeing a patient that we're doing tomorrow. I'm going to pick that patient up at 5.30 in the morning. I take them to the hospital and either I or one of my helpers takes the patient back. We really give a lot of uh, personal attention to our patients. Um, and people just started coming more and more and people got good results and they loved the way we took care of them. Um, and they just that's and it just got busier and busier and busier. And so now for the last, what is it, 17, 18 years, we've just been busy as can be. And now not only I train our plastic surgery residents how to do some transgender surgery, they all don't they don't all want to do it. But some do facial feminization surgery, some do breast surgery, and a very small number, actually only two of them do the bottom surgery. So the three of us in Philadelphia that do it myself, and two of my former residents have busy practices doing all of transgender surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how it all started. That's how I got started. And we've just been busy. And now I have not only my own residents that train with me, but surgeons from around the country come to train. I've trained people who are now working in New York, because now New York is doing transgender surgery. I train two or three other surgeons that are in those hospitals at Mount Sinai Hospital, Beth Israel Hospital, in New York. I trained the surgeon who started the transgender center at the Cleveland Clinic. University of Miami, California. Uh, so people just come to me to, to learn and spend mm-hmm. some time with me and learn. And now we started a fellowship. After they're finished their plastic surgery training, they have to do general surgery at least three, after medical school, at least three years of general surgery, at least three years of plastic surgery. And now they can come to me to work only with me for one year as a fellowship in transgender surgery. So now we have a terrific guy now, Dr. Opoku um, from Ghana, a terrific guy who's uh, my fellow now for a year. And I'm hoping he's going to join my practice uh, this spring, summer. And so we can, and then we'll take another fellow and train somebody else. So we can have people that are properly trained in this, in this field, because we really need it in this country. Oh, absolutely. And it, and it is a very specialized area, of course. Um, I think it's overly, it's thought to be overly simple because it's so much more than just the physical aspects of change, right? There's all of the, the mental pieces of it that need to be worked in. And there's so much variety. There's so much spectrum in, in terms of a person's gender. Absolutely. I'm going to go back to the current term that's being used so that we, our listeners can get a, a sense of what it is and what it means in, in the medical world today. Gender dysphoria. What does that all include? The term gender dysphoria, many terms have been used to describe this diagnosis, if you will, or description of this condition. Um, We currently use now gender dysphoria. Really, the words just mean unhappy with your biologic gender. That's all it really means. But we use that now, and it's also used by the insurance companies um, as the diagnosis. It used to be called for a few years, the insurance company used gender identity disorder. But a lot of people 
didn't like the term disorder <clears throat> because it sounded like a disease. It's not a disease. It's just a variation of, of people. But it's, it's not a disease. In my own mind, if you take the word even disorder apart, to me it is a disorder because there's a disorder between the brain and the biological body. It's not the right order. Um, the brain and the heart, in your way, meaning your emotions, not that your heart is any different than physical heart. I mean by heart, I mean your emotions and your soul. Um, is one gender and your biologic body, the body that you were born in is another gender. Um, that's the disorder. But we didn't want to use that as a as a diagnosis uh, term because it sounded too much like a disease, which it's not a disease. Although if you take that word apart, even dis and ease, we certainly, that a transgender person or some gender dysphoria is not at ease with their biologic body. So you can sort of think if you take the words apart, you know, it is something you're not at ease with that. Is it a dis-ease? But we don't want to call it a, a disease, you right. know, because that just means you're sick, you know, your appendix or your gallbladder or you got cancer or something like that. It's it's not that. It's a, it's a condition where we have to coordinate the brain and your emotions and your body. And that's the frustration of of um, this condition or whatever you want to call it. I, to me, I don't care what you call it. In lay terms, we call it transgenderism. Some people, it, older term is transsexualism. Um, they mis, misinterpreted and called it hermaphrodism. It's not hermaphrodism at all. Uh, some people are born with ambiguous genitalia or they, the surgeons or the, the OB man and the pediatrician aren't sure which gender it is because the genitalia aren't clear. It's not clear one way or another. Well, that's that could be, uh, there actually is no such thing as a hermaphrodite. Um, a hermaphrodite, theoretically, is uh, an individual born with both genitalia, internal and external genitalia. They have ovaries, testes, a penis, and a vagina, and a uterus, and fallopian, everything, and is able to impregnate oneself. Well, that has never happened in human history. So the closest we can get to it, or call it ambiguous genitalia, or pseudo-hermaphrodism, sort of, sort of <laughs> hermaphrodism. Right. It's well, it's pseudo-hermaphrodism when you're not sure what's going on until you do some studies and X-rays and MRIs and laparoscopy and see what's inside and what's outside. But the truth of the matter is, um, and hormonally, you can check people's hormone levels and you can check people's chromosomes and None of that really matters. It matters just how a person feels. Because now a very important study was done some years ago. Actually, it came out of Holland. They've been really advanced in this whole field compared to the rest of the world. And they showed that there's actually a part of the brain called the bed nucleus, which is in our hypothalamus, right in the middle of our brain, which is one size and shape in the average normal male and one size and shape in the average normal female. And it turns out in a number of um, studies that they did now that we can do MRIs the last few years and CT scans and even some autopsies on people that died, it turns out that at least in transgender females, trans girls, male to female girls, they are born with and demonstrate a female bed nucleus. In other words, they're born with the brain of a female sure. in that part of your brain where it counts. 
not, not the bad nucleus of a male. So it's, it's not something that people have a choice. You don't just grow up and decide, oh, I think I'm going to be, I, I had a rough time with that girl, that guy, I'm going, to, I'm going to change my sex. That's not, if I hear that story, I put a big X through it. That's not a, that person needs psychological help. That's not a, that's not a transgender person, really. Transgender person, most, almost everyone, I'd say, probably 99.9% .9 of my patients, I ask, I ask everybody, but not, almost, almost 100% of patients, when I ask them, how long have you felt different in your life? Maybe not understanding what it was if you were very young, but how long did you feel different from other little boys and girls? And almost everyone says the same thing. As long as I can remember. Yeah. <clears throat> Sometimes I'll say, I don't know, three, four, five years old, I wanted to wear a dress. I I wanted to I wanted to not have a haircut. I wanted to let my hair grow long. I wanted to play with the girls and do girl things, or vice versa for the trans guys. I don't want long hair. I want, I cut my own hair off. You know, I want to play ball. I want to fight with the guy. You know, I want to do all these guy things. And often they're pushed down. They're tamped down usually by their parents. Don't be a sissy. Don't do this. Don't do that. So be a man. Be a man. And so right. if they're smacked around and you do that, I'll, you know, throw you out of the house. I'll break your neck. I'll do this or that. Or don't you dare do your wear your sister's dress and stuff like that. You be a man. And they and they and the guys, the, the kids sometimes try to be a, a boy and they go out for football. And they go, they they want to play this or that or they want to play soldier. They force themselves. And then some of them who happen to be natural athletes like Bruce Jenner, you know, happened to excel. It was a big six foot five out of toy was six foot four or five and a terrific athlete. And he worked like crazy and he was a very talented athlete, became one of the world's greatest athletes. But he was hiding that all of his life. He was frustrated his entire life. Right. And he overcompensated. You could be an athlete. You could be a policeman. You could be a truck driver with a big truck. You could you could do all these. Uh, you'd work as a contractor. You, know, you overcompensate. And that happens so much. I hear that story over and over and over again. Yeah. But most of them know since they were very young. It feels like today, though, that the difference between say 20 years ago and, and now in 2021 is we not only have examples, living examples, like you mentioned, Caitlyn Jenner, but we also have language. Children can articulate what they're feeling. And we have an understanding, as you just described, about what's really happening here. It's not just about, you know, a girl wanting to be a tomboy uh, or a boy who wants to dress up like a girl. That we, we really have some capacity to understand that, oh, there is this physiological, biological difference that exists, this disagreement between the, the mind and the body. How is that different than the term intersex? We hear that a lot to describe uh, people who are born with ambiguous genitalia. Well, that is, that's the difference. I mean, kids are sometimes babies are born and the, the obstetrician or the pediatrician that's there isn't sure. And in the past, hopefully it doesn't happen too often anymore although I'm sure it still happens. They're just not sure what's the genita which genitalia belong to this person or what, you know, what, they, and they just make a decision which can be right or, or wrong. They make a decision and say, oh, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a boy or it's a girl. And, you know, this, this kid should have surgery right away. And they, they do surgery, which is a terrible mistake. They should leave the kid alone. If they're not sure, 
don't touch this kid, you know, let the kid start to grow up, leave him alone. And now we understand that they sort of identify themselves very early in life. And what they should do is take these kids to now almost every children's hospital in the United States has a, has a, a gender clinic or gender identity clinic, or they call it by different names mm-hmm. in different hospitals. But the first one was in Boston. Norman Spack was the head of pediatric and adolescent endocrinology at Boston Children's Hospital. He taught at Harvard Medical School and he was on the staff at Mass General, but his main thing was Boston Children's Hospital. I met him several years ago at a meeting and we became good friends. And then he saw a couple of patients of mine and he started sending me patients from Boston. So I, I've operated a number of people from Boston, many of whom who were sent by him originally. Now he retired a couple of years ago, but they still send me patients. Mm-hmm. They, they have a surgeon finally now in Boston who does the surgery, although I understand he doesn't like to do it very much, so he doesn't do much of it. I still have patients from Boston. But the, there's a protocol now. Parents should be aware of what's going on, be sensitive. Don't just smack the kid around or say, no, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. You can leave the kid alone. If he wants to wear certain types of clothes, if at the most, let him just wear in between clothes. Let him wear, you know, polo shirts and pants or slacks or whatever, whatever. He doesn't have to wear a dress, he doesn't have to wear, you know, just ambiguous clothing for a while. And talk to the teachers at school and let them go to a special bathroom and go to the teacher's bathroom or have it. Now they're having more and more gender neutral bathrooms in right. schools. We do it our neighborhood here in Philadelphia. We have gender neutral bathrooms so anyone can go in there. Or the nurse will let them use the, 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 the one of the clinic or something in their, in their clinic. That's the thing. Now, the proper way to do it is to recognize these kids earlier. The earlier, the better. When they're about 10 years old, pre-pubertal. Now the the recommended protocol, it's called the Dutch protocol because it was developed in Holland a few years ago, maybe five, six, seven years ago now. The Dutch protocol is, which most of us who do this all the time know, they evaluate them, they have a pediatric psychologist or psychiatrist that understands all of this and they put the child on hormone suppressants so that they don't enter puberty. So if it's a if it's a biological male, they usually, because kids are unreliable to take medicines every day, they put a little pellet under the skin of their arm and it has mm. a hormone in it that suppresses their natural hormones so they don't enter puberty. So they don't develop a beard and they don't develop a deeper voice as they go through the teens, which guys usually do. And um, they usually don't get too big, so they don't get too tall and um, they don't develop big hands and big feet and adult sized genitalia for just a couple of years. So maybe they're 12 or something. And then they put them on the proper hormones. They'll put them on estrogen that they can take either by a shot or by pill or they'll put them on testosterone if they're a female to male and they start taking testosterone and then they develop very nicely in their desired gender. And it, it's such a difference when they start early like that. They develop great. The girls are, I mean, some of the best results I've had in, over the last all these years has been in kids that were started young. Some of these girls are just, they're just lovely young, young women. I mean, they're just 
Lovely, that's all I can say. And they're feminine, their voice is high, their skin is smooth, they have no beard, they don't have a hairy chest. They, they develop little fuller hips. Um, it doesn't really change their skeleton very much, except they, doesn't, they don't grow real big. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't grow as tall as the average boy where they stay a little bit shorter, which is better f- for, for the most girls. And, and then they just stay at home. And then later, later in life, meaning sort of mid to late teens, then we can start to talk about surgery. They should see their, originally their pediatric mental health specialist, pediatric endocrinologist, and then they can come maybe when they're 16, 17, they can come. I, some parents bring them to me when they're 14. For what I, We talk about it a little bit and we put them off and put them off and put them off. The youngest we do surgery or now, the youngest patients we do any gender reassignment surgery is 18. It, it was it is officially 18 uh, according to WPAS standards, but now it's getting a little lower. So we're doing them now actually as early as 16. But the, both parents, both guardians have to sign off on it. They both have to be in agreement. And um, then we have, I have, a, I have a 17-year-old girl upstairs right now. I did just about a week ago. Um, mm. And who's just lovely. And um, they get the best results to me. And they're young and healthy. And so they heal well from surgery. The only one problem is if the genitalia are small, Sometimes it's not as, as much skin as we need, and we have to take a little extra skin in the form of a skin graft to make everything come together. But I really have to do that, actually, because the skin, the genitalia stretches pretty much, and it usually works fine. But that's just the only thing that's sometimes a problem, not too often, but occasionally. We have to take a skin graft that they've been on hormones, like hormone suppressants since they were like 10 years old. But most of them, I don't have to do it. I said, just, just, just rarely. Now, one of the but questions. Then, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, then they then they do fine. They usually do well with surgery, and they're they're very happy. Sometimes, if they're not mature emotionally, I like to leave them go a little bit longer, because if they're very sometimes a 16 year old can be immature and be very emotional and carry on and just not be able to handle, you know, the aftercare as much and dilations and things like that. But but frequently they're very mature and settled and they're okay. So I have to be a little selective because sometimes as psychologists, well, we depend on them, but sometimes there's some that are busy and they write the letter a little too quick and um, don't take enough time to evaluate them. Mostly the people from the pediatric hospitals are pretty good and we rely on those letters. We need two letters uh, from mental health specialists who are educated and or experienced in transgender mm-hmm. issues to write letters with some history of that patient and their family, recommending them as good candidates for the surgery. We need them to be living at least one year full-time in their desired gender. So these are, these are, they need to be healthy. You know, these are important protocols. They should be on hormones for at least a year before we do at least a genital reassignment. And they're the WPAS standards and I follow that pretty, pretty closely. So, so I was going to ask a bunch of questions about that, but I want to go back to the, the, the um, puberty blockers that you talked about. Are those reversible? I mean, if, if a, a child begins that process and then, as you suggest, at the age of 12 or 13 says, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm not this way or I don't, want to, I don't want to proceed. I want to proceed and allow my body to uh, grow as uh, as it matches the genitals I was born with. 
if you remove those puberty blockers, what happens? Well, the puberty blockers, if you just stop the blockers, then they'll grow up okay. Right. And let, okay. Their, own, let their own hormones take over. They'll grow up perfectly normal. They'll grow up as a little boy or the little girl, whatever they, they were originally. <clears throat> but once they start taking hormones, say they're 13 years old, once they start taking hormones, then uh, they'll have some irreversible changes. For instance, a male to female that starts estrogens, within a year they'll develop breasts. Most breast development occurs during the first year. Sometimes they get a little bit more the second year. But even if they stop taking the estrogens, then the breasts will not disappear. It won't disappear. I mean, they don't produce sperm in their testicles if you're on estrogen. And the testicles will shrink up a little bit and the genitalia will shrink up a little bit. And they certainly will not produce sperm. But if they stop taking the hormones, that'll come back. But the breasts stay. So some things will revert back and some things won't. Okay. So it depends. It's the answer. The answer is yes and no. So these become these become really important decisions. I mean, you can you can delay the onset of puberty to give a child more time because I mean, clearly the the human brain doesn't fully develop until what age now? What what what's the thinking? Twenty five or so? The twenties, maybe in the twenties, yeah. And so the body is way ahead of that. You know, perhaps ten or twelve years. Uh, So that delay obviously is is super beneficial. But then once, you know, you move down the road of hormones, then the decisions become a lot more serious. And I want to go to what you were talking about in terms of the, the psychological support that's required. Um, obviously, someone who's going to be, go down the road of hormones is going to be talking also with a psychologist about the mental aspects of their gender. Absolutely. They shouldn't even go on hormones until it's recommended by the mental health specialist. That's actually step number one. Okay. Then being recognized by your parents or whoever you're living with. But then the first professional step is to be evaluated by a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or a psychiatric social worker who's trained in gender issues. And so and a person, then, person would they, then go on hormones. When they make the diagnosis, if they agree, after they've seen the patient a few times, because it's not a one-visit diagnosis, right. they should see the patient a number of times, and hopefully the parents too, then when they make the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, then they then the psychologist recommends, well, you're a good candidate for this, really. Now it's time to think about going on hormones, and I can refer you to an endocrinologist or this doctor who has expertise in, in hormone therapy. Mm-hmm. And then they go to hormones. And then surgery should be a later consideration. Right. And then there's right. the whole social-cultural piece of actually living your life, your body will certainly develop consistently with the hormones that you're on, but then you actually need to live your life, dress in the gender that you're, that you're expressing and identifying as, go to work, go to school, all of that plays into it as well. And, and you mentioned that, that a person should do that for at least a year. They should be living full-time for at least a year in their desired gender, be on hormones for at least a year. I've some of my patients on for many years, at least a year, and have letters from two mental health specialists who have experience or training in gender identity issues. But that's all very important, you know, and that's all very frustrating. That's frustrating and anxiety producing to grow up sometimes not sure, but at least confused and and not sure about what's happening. And different people treat you differently. Some people treat you not nicely at all. Sometimes it's your parents or siblings or 
school kids can be cruel. Little kids can be cruel to each other. And so they almost, I'd say the overwhelming majority of trans kids grow up with depression and anxiety problems. They can also have other syndromes like biosocial syndrome. Today, bipolar, actually the person I'm operating on tomorrow, a bipolar syndrome in addition to depression and anxiety. And so they're frequently on medications for the depression or bipolar or anxiety, mm. along with the hormones and whatever other medical conditions they may or may not have. I just, a patient today would be on 15 different medicines of a great variety of them. A patient had asthma, patient, the other patient had, was HIV positive, but undetectable because they've been treated properly. So they can be on a long list of medicines, but very commonly they're on antidepressants sure. and anti-anxiety. There's so many on the whole variety of, of those medicines that are, are prescribed by psychiatrists, yeah. really. Well, I guess the good news out of all of this so far is that we have the language now and, and um, treatment in support is much more accessible to young people before puberty begins. But let's talk about those older adults. And I, I've met, I don't know, dozens here in Sonoma County over the years who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s even who now recognize and have a language to describe what they've been feeling, as you mentioned, their entire life since they were a young child. Talk about the process and how it's different for someone who's in their 40s or 50s or 60s. Is it too late? It's never too late uh, to be on hormones, <clears throat> it, although the hormones won't do as much as they do if you start young. I mean, the best is really very young because then they don't develop a beard. Mm -hmm. At least the, you know, the females won't develop a beard or a low voice mm -hmm. um, or extra muscles. Because one thing the hormones, the hormones will, do, will do, even after they start later in life, they will get some muscle atrophy. But it won't change your features and it won't change your voice. Estrogens given to a male will not change the voice, will not make the beard disappear. But testosterone given to a biological female will change the voice, will lower the voice, and will grow a beard and a hairy body. Interesting. It's a shame for the trans girls because they spend thousands of dollars getting electrolysis mm -hmm, or laser mm -hmm. for their facial hair, their body hair, their everything hair. And there's they get voice training and some just can't hack it. They just can't do it. And some wind up you know, having to have surgery. And the surgery is not guaranteed that it works. It doesn't always work out well. It's still a little bit experimental. Uh, I've heard some good results. I've seen some bad results. But the uh, best way to do it they, for anyone who might be listening is to get first voice training by a voice therapist, a voice pathologist, a voice coach, because they can do a lot. There's some voice coaches out there that are just terrific with teaching you how to speak in a higher tone of voice, mm -hmm. a more feminine voice, and a, a way of female speaking that sounds a little different than the way the average guy speaks. So you can be trained in that. I just play around with it some, but it's a, it's a doable. But if I know some people can't do it and have to have surgery and even the surgery doesn't always work. I have one patient I'm thinking of, gorgeous trans girl, beautiful and smart. She actually had a PhD in electrical engineering. I mean, a brilliant person, looks great. Married another one of my patients. I was the best man at a wedding. Oh my gosh. That's a whole other story. I could just tell you a whole story about those two. But her problem is she looks terrific. But as soon as she, she opens the mouth and says hello, she's a baritone. Oh, my gosh. She, said, she couldn't do the training. She, it just didn't work. 
She had three surgeries. It might be a little bit better, but she's still a baritone. So as soon as she says, hi, how you doing? I mean, then it's, she's out it. Right. So it's just, it's just a shame. Um, most people will get a, can learn to speak with voice therapy. Another group of people can get a nice improvement with surgery. Small number of people, just like this one person I'm thinking of, just a, it's a problem. Mm -hmm. So the, is the process then for a person in their 40s, 50s, or 60s uh, the same in terms of the, the time with the psychologist, the letters, going, the yes, hormones? Yes, absolutely. Going on hormones, getting electrolysis or laser hair removal. If the, if the hair, body hair is dark, laser works and much more efficient. If it's white or gray or blonde, you have to do, or the skin is dark for a brown or black patient, then then you have to do electrolysis, uh, otherwise laser. Um, voice therapy, learn how to dress, learn how to put makeup on, not overdo it. Has to look natural. Some people, that's a hard, difficult problem for it, how to walk a little differently, you know. Uh, that's all important. And they can do surgery, whatever surgery they want, as long as they're medically healthy enough. doesn't matter. I did one of the oldest people in the world in the mid-70s. And uh, some newspapers wrote articles about this individual. It used to be a tough uh, uh, Green Beret. Yeah. Um, I saw green, I, I saw that story. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. that was interesting. It's Very fascinating. Lovely. Very interesting person, a real character of a person, too. Yeah. She was, she was, we became friendly. Um, she was very, she moved to the south with another I think another trans friend moved south and they're having a good time. She's in her eighties now and they're traveling around the world and they're having a nice time together. Um, but she was, uh, that was a special patient. We kept in touch with her for years. I haven't heard from her now for maybe a year or so. She checks in once in a while. Hmm. And when she ever comes up to the, to North, up North to Philly, she'll, she'll give you a call. We'll get together. We'll, she'll stop it. Well, but you can do it at any age. Age is not a limit. 16 is the youngest will do it. And there's no age limit going up as long as they're medically healthy and they're psychologically right for it. Right. So there's really a nice partnership between the <clears throat> psychiatric side of things and the medical side of things. And there's a time period where that person lives to make sure. Because, you know, as you mentioned, some of these surgeries and even with the hormones at any age, you can't reverse. Or if you do reverse it, it's, it's, it's not pretty, right? Um, but I have to believe that the, that the surgeries themselves have, there've been great advances. I mean, we're, we're talking significant increases in, in both success and safety and outcomes from the time that Christine Jorgensen first had her surgery, uh, decades and decades and decades ago. Now, what are some of the, the, the initial surgeries that people typically begin with? Cause you don't just go right from zero to 60, do you, once you've been cleared? Sometimes we do a lot. We do almost all the surgery at one hospitalization. I'm doing that tomorrow and I do it frequently. You can if they want to and if they can afford it or if their insurance will pay for it. Because usually once someone decides really they want to transition and they want to, they've wanted to do it usually for years. And now it's a time in their life where they can and they can either afford it or they have insurance that'll cover transgender surgery. A big change occurred during the Obama administration where they pushed to get transgender diagnoses and surgery and medical care and hormonal care recognized by the medical community and the legal community and the insurance community. <clears throat> and Obama's administration pushed 
the insurance industry, the health insurance industry, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Aetna, all these companies, to cover transgender surgery because it was medically necessary. As, opposed, require, as opposed to cosmetic. As opposed to just having some liposuction to, to reduce right. your waist or a nose job to be a, have a cuter nose. But transgender surgery is medically necessary for treatment of gender dysphoria. It's medically necessary. That's one reason why there's a couple letters from psychiatrist or psychologist or psychiatric social worker to document the medical necessity of it. You know, the face is, can be, and often is more important than the genital or the chest surgery. Sure. You, know, you can always pat a bra and look good in a dress. No one sees what's under your clothes as far as your genitals are concerned, except people that you're intimate with. And of course, in your yourself, to yourself, which is the most important thing. But your face is a, will out somebody if you're trying to present to the, yourself in the world as a female, but you have some typically masculine features of your face. And if we have time, we can go into what they are. We can change those. So for instance, tomorrow, I'm going to pick her up at 5.30 in the morning, take her to the hospital while they're getting her ready. I'll have breakfast. Boom. We go, we'll do a breast augmentation and the genital reassignment, male to female genital reassignment. All, the, all in the same visit. Yeah, that one day. It'll take about six, seven hours to do it together. And I, I don't have other people do my surgery. Some surgeons are having like an assembly line and they have three or four assistants and they start the surgery and the assistants wind up doing most of it and they go to another room and start another one. Then the assistants go finish that one. I don't like that kind of surgery. I do my own surgery. I do high quality surgery, but I want to do it. I have an assistant, a good assistant, but I do the surgery. I'm there for the entire thing, from the beginning to the very end of it. And yeah, tomorrow we're doing breast augmentation and um, genital reassignment in the morning. Patient will go back to the room. They have an IV running. We just keep the IV going all night. They're not going to have a big meal for dinner. Let's have some liquids also if they want to. We're going to bring her back tomorrow, the next day, the very next day. <clears throat> because when we do the bottom surgery, we're in the hospital for three days. When we do facial or breast surgery, they're in and out the same day. Incredible. But tomorrow we'll do the breast and the bottom day number one. The next day we'll come down. We'll do a lot of facial feminization. We're going to do a thyroid cartilage reduction to re reduce the Adam's apple. Sometimes we do a chin, not tomorrow. We're going to do an upper lip shortening tomorrow. We're going to do a rhinoplasty and fix her septum too, because that's crooked and we can fix that for her. A forehead brow lift and get rid of the bags under her eyes. So at the same time, a little bit of cosmetic surgery. <clears throat> She'll have to pay for that herself. But everything else is covered by our insurance company. It comes to a pretty big bill between sure. the surgery fee, the hospital fee, the anesthesia fee for two days of surgery in the OR and three days in the hospital. And without insurance, it would not be happening. Right. That has permitted that recognition by the insurance companies. They were pushed to do it because they don't like to spend any money that they don't have to spend. But um, the fact that all that is covered um, permits a lot of people to do the procedures and become who they really want to be, who they are inside but not outside. And the face is super important because that can out them and that can get them in trouble. Right. They, can get, they can get beat up. They can get all kinds of terrible things can happen if they look or, you know, like a, like a guy and they're dressed as a girl. So the facial feminization procedures, I mean, that's really important. If someone can't afford to do all of it at one time, 
I mean, they really should do whatever's important to them. But I would recommend do the face. Right. Yeah, we learn how to dress and put, do hair and things like that. If they bald like me, I mean, then you put a nice hair piece. They make beautiful hair pieces yeah. today. Um, but do the face first because that has, you can't cover up your face with clothes unless right. you're right. wear a burka or a veil yeah. or something. Yeah. That's important. But in this case, and I do it many times, two days of surgery, and we can get everything done. Breast, bottom, face. I've had uh, several, several trans students, um, <clears throat> trans men, who uh, in college, in their college years, have gone in for double mastectomy um, and some chest reconstruction. And the that's, most common operation for the trans guys. Yeah, and it, and it and it's remarkably fast, as you alluded to. I mean, their experience has been much the same. And yeah, well, so you just come out in one week and you're done. Take it easy for a week or two, and you're you're in business. It's, they're so happy, the guys. Oh, it, I was just so going to say that they, I, you can see it. It's it's a physical change in their smile. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that is quite remarkable, and and so I I would think you know things like the face and 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 chest are important and and easier, but the, to make a decision about necessarily easier. I mean, the breast is kind of a routine procedure for someone that does it all the time. Face not so easy. Rhinoplasty is one of the most difficult surgeries mm. in place of surgery, actually. But sometimes we have to change the skull. We actually open up the skull and flatten the forehead. You know, rhinoplasty is a difficult operation for even for a lot of plastic surgeons. A lot of plastic surgeons won't do a rhinoplasty. I happen to love them. I do them well, and I love them, and I teach it to our residents. But the upper lip shortening, not so difficult, but you still have to know how to do it. Jaw, mandible, recontouring, abdominal reduction. You have to know how to do those things. You can't just go watch one and do one. You know? Complicated. Complicated. Yeah, especially the nose and some of the skull surgeries. I mean, that's, it's not, that's not baby surgery. I think one of the common stereotypes that's out there, though, is that anybody who's trans wants to immediately focus on having sex reassignment surgery. Um, and there's some sacri- there's some sacrifice. I, I know it's it's a falsehood, but there's a sort of assumption out in society that that someone wants to, to do that, or that would be the first thing that they would go to. And uh, sometimes people make decisions not to do that because there are sacrifices uh, in, in that. Right? From everything I've read so far, and tell me if I'm wrong, it is much easier for a person to transition from male to female as opposed to transitioning from female to male. Still true. I wouldn't say it's easier. Um, it's very different, obviously. Um, most trans guys, the majority of trans guys do not do the bottom surgery. Not because it's more difficult, but two big, the two biggest reasons are no one in the world can create male genitalia that can function normally and have a natural erection. We can create those, those complicated anatomical things that we call corpora cavernosa that have thousands of little blood vessels in them that swell up and deflate, fill up with blood to make an erection and then deflate. We can't create that. Um, And that's a big problem. You can put in a penile implant, but unfortunately most of them will pop out when you use them a couple of times. It'll just, it's like putting a pencil or a pen in a block of butter on your dinner table. If you push it in the slightest push, because it'll pop right out the end. That's exactly what happens. So most of them come out. So I stopped doing the implants. But we do other things. We do other things instead. First of all, they make a terrific uh, a thicker condom. Put a thicker condom over it. makes it rigid enough to be able to have intercourse. They sell extenders and expanders. You just wrap around it and you're ready to go. 
um, you can put on two condoms. You can wrap the penis in coban once or twice around and put a condom over it. So there are a lot of things to do. And sometimes patients tell me they come in, they're couples, they're together. I said, are you, are you able to have intercourse? And they say, oh yeah. I said, well, which of these techniques are you using? And sometimes they say, we don't, usually we don't use any of those techniques. I said, what? Because the penis is flaccid all the time. Can't have an erection. Mm-hmm. And the wife says, oh, we just lubricate the penis and I stuff it in my vagina like, a, like you're stuffing a sausage or something. And we, and we wiggle around and it feels good. Sometimes you fall asleep like that. And sometimes we do one of these other techniques just for fun, just to do something different. So they're only limited as their your own imagination, that's all. Mm-hmm. So that's the one big thing is the erection problem. A lot of people don't want to do it. Well, if I can't have a natural erection, I want to do it. The other problem is, and why most trans men don't do the surgery is, they say, I want to be able to urinate. I want to be able to pee through the new phallus, through that neophallus, the new phallus, the new penis. And if I can't do that, I'm not going to go through all that suffering in this. And actually, it's not so much suffering, really. But it's, um, and technically, we can do that. We can extend the urethra. But, see, that's doable. But it has a very high rate of complications. Mm-hmm. First of all, the skin graft that you put in there, either a skin graft or a lining from the vagina that you can use or a buckle graft from the inside of the mouth, we can use, wrap it around a catheter and sew it to the existing, the long hose to the short hose. Problem is where you suture, that makes a scar and scars, especially in a circular dimension can contract very easily. And that's what happens. The skin graft or buckle graft may not take partially or totally, then it closes up. Or the skin or that circular scar where you make the anastomosis starts getting smaller and smaller and smaller because all scar tissue has a tendency to contract especially a round scar. And as it gets tighter and tighter, the urine has trouble getting out. So that's called urinary outflow obstruction. And the the urethra behind that, between that and the bladder, starts to dilate like a balloon. That's called a diverticulum and it retains urine. So when they go to urinate, they urinate a little bit and it all doesn't empty, it's in that little balloon, that diverticulum. And so it's dripping all day long. It's just dripping and dripping. They're wetting their clothes all the time. That's a pain. And then when it gets even tighter, the pressure is too much, so the urine breaks through the skin. It breaks through the urethra, breaks down the anastomosis, and pops out through the base of the penis or through the scrotum. Problems that can be repaired, but it requires sometimes several surgeries to correct it. It's like a baby born with a hypospadias, an abnormally low position of the opening of the urethra. Mm-hmm. The urethral meatus is down by the base of the penis or in the scrotum or somewhere. And it could be anywhere along the shaft on the front, bottom or the top of it. It's called epispadius. It's called hypospadius. So for those two main reasons, most trans guys don't do the bottom surgery. I happen to do a lot of them because I'm one of the few people that does them. Because most surgeons won't even do them. One technique of doing doing male you know, surgery is, is um, a metoidioplasty. It's basically a clitoral release. Just release the clitoris, take a little bit of the labia minora, wrap it around the bottom and lift it up. And at least it projects a little bit out and looks like a little mini penis. The problem is it's a mini penis. It looks like a little boy's penis. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not big enough to have intercourse with. But that's okay for some guys. That's all right. They know they had genital reassignment. They just have a small penis. Um, But if you want an adult-sized penis, you have to do it with either a local flap of tissue 
from the abdomen or the groin or the thigh, or a free flap where you take a large amount of tissue from about half your arm, your forearm, or somewhere in your leg or maybe the back of the arm is the most common. And that's created into a, a, a phallic uh, shape. If you take it off and wrap it together, can be done with a urethral connection. And they have to take artery, veins, and nerve from your arm and anastomose it to some arteries, veins, and nerves in the pelvic region. And um, takes a long time to do it. A lot of times it's not so good, although people that do a lot of microvascular surgery are getting better and better results. I've seen some good results. Just a few university hospitals do that where there are microvascular surgeons. Takes 10 to 12 hours, cost about $200,000. Wow. So if your insurance doesn't cover it, forget it. Most people can't afford that. Yeah. The regular procedure I do, I do a, a local flap from either the lower abdomen or the groin. That doesn't take uh, 10, 12 hours. It takes about five, six hours. And um, they're in and out of the hospital just one night. The other day, they have to stay in maybe several days or a week or so. Um, and it's much less expensive. The whole thing is uh, somewhere between twenty dollars and $25,000. And they can create a scrotum. And they can do it. It can look circumcised or not circumcised. So we have a lot of options. We can put testicular implants in the scrotum that we create from the labia. So there are a lot of lot of options. Interesting. And for trans women, uh, I would I would guess from what I've read that the surgery is more successful in terms of a person's ability well, to I, have sex. I, I, and I have to tell you, well, the the guys can have sex too with usually one of those right, aids, right, right, right. Condom. A lot of men use condoms anyhow, so it's not a big deal. Or extender and expander, or one of these other techniques we mentioned. And the women, um, if they heal well, that they, they can have sex easier. They don't need any special things. But I must say that the um, both operations for the guys or the girls are 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 their complex surgeries, and there's a relatively high incidence of complications. Most of the complications are minimal and they'll heal up well by themselves for some good wound care and attention. Some doctors, I really watch my patients like a hawk and I'm all over them and I'm taking care of them. I'm dressing their, their wounds every day. They can have a wound dehiscence. The incisions can open up. They could have an infection. They could have a bad scar. They could have all kinds of things that part of the flaps could die. And then you have to correct that, trim away dead tissue and repair. So there's a lot of that that goes on in both the trans guys and the trans women uh, surgeries. But if you get good wound care, it'll heal up and nicely. There are a couple of uh, complications that we do in the trans girls, the trans women, that are more serious than for the trans men. I mean, the worst thing you can have with the trans men is that the whole phallus dies, either a third of it, a half of it, or all of it. I've never had all of it die, but I've sometimes portions of it may not survive especially if they're obese or if they have diabetes or if they're smokers, mm -hmm. it's all bad for any surgery, but especially when you make any kind of flaps or grafts for the trans girls, the worst things that could happen are vaginal stenosis. If some of the skin graft or skin flap inside the vagina dies and they're not dilating regularly enough, or if they just don't dilate, it'll just close up. And for one reason or another, some people get upset or they change, they don't change their mind, but they just, I don't know what a whole variety of reasons they don't dilate regularly or they get to go through a fit of depression and they question whether they're doing the right thing or they don't dilate. They'll get a stenosis or if a large part of the graft or flap inside dies, they'll, you know, it'll get stenotic. Then you have to open it up surgically again. Or the worst thing that can happen is for the trans girls, 
It does can happen for the trans guys, but for the trans girls, it's a fistula. A fistula is the worst thing that can happen. That's it can happen in surgery. It could happen sometime after surgery. A fistula is an abnormal connection between body parts that aren't supposed to be connected. For instance, if I got shot in my cheek or stabbed, and there's a hole between my cheek and my mouth, I'll put my finger inside one and it goes. That's called an orocutaneous fistula. Oro. Mm -hmm. cutaneous fistula well it would have to be repaired surgically um or repaired immediately if it happened or if it heals up that way it'll be a hole in my face you know when you have a a pierced earring or a pierced nose or a pierced anything that's a that's a fistula it's and you're not born with a hole in your lip or your nose or your ear like that earrings that you make a cutaneous cutaneous fistula skin to skin you know uh you know that all these are abnormal fistulas but if it happens if you develop a hole in your bladder, because somebody, I had a patient once that went home, she had did fine with the surgery. She decided that she wanted to have a much deeper vagina, a couple inches deeper. She said, well, I'll just push harder on the, on the dilator. She popped a hole right in her bladder. Oh my gosh. And then urine's dripping out into the vagina and wetting her clothes all the time. Well, luckily it can be fixed. I had another patient that came from actually one of our West Coast surgeons came and she said, nobody showed her how to dilate properly. She pushed the dilator straight down too much and she popped a hole into her colon. And so she had a rectovaginal fistula and her bowels moved through the vagina. So that's a big problem. Uh, so she had that fixed and that can be fixed too, but it has to be done by a colorectal surgeon. Um, they're, they're, luckily they don't happen very often. I think about a half of 1% uh, of Bottom surgery patients, genital reassignment patients, male to female, get a, a fistula. Mm-hmm. Much more common to get stenosis. So, and that can be fixed. We just have to reoperate them and put a new skin graft or sometimes not a skin graft. They just have to dilate a lot. Yeah. A lot. Well, what I, what I hear is, A, make sure that you're talking with a doctor who knows what they're doing. And two, yes. it's, a, it's, a, it's a very complex surgery. Even with all the advances today, there's a lot to consider, obviously. Yeah, it's not a light thing. It's a serious thing. Go to somebody that has experience, has been well-trained and experienced, and that has a reputation for taking care, not only doing high-quality surgery, but taking care of their patients afterwards. And fortunately, that's one of the benefits of technology today. People can check out surgeons online because you can read reviews about surgeons any kind of surgeon, a right. surgeon, a general surgeon, any surgeon. But it's very important with the, with a trans surgeon because most of the people, the few people that are really busy and have experience, they have generally pretty good reviews, although no one gets 100% reviews because the people criticize easily online when you, you don't know where of it's course. coming from. Of course. But the, the good surgeons will have mostly very good reviews about their surgery and about the care. And there's a couple of surgeons that have pretty terrible, consistently terrible reviews. Why people go to them, I don't know, other than the fact what I do know, their insurance company sends them because they participate in the insurance plan. They're an in-network doctor. The patient has no choice. If they don't have the money, they have to go to an in-network doctor. And then sometimes it turns out to be a disaster, and then they wind up going to another surgeon to do the corrections. I do a lot of secondary and tertiary surgeries because of problems problems well that's a perfect lead into this next question which is where can people go to learn about you and your practice and uh, you know to get more in touch with well my practice and anybody's practice you can go on a website my website is 
It's called thetransgendercenter.com. Thetransgendercenter.com. Look at that website. There's a lot of information on that website. Or they can call the office. And the number, by the way, the number is it's on the website, but it's 610-667-1888. And they could arrange for a consultation if they really want to do some research first. Look at other doctors, not just me. Look at other doctors. Read reviews of other doctors. Read mine, read other doctors. They should research, you know, and, and then decide who you want to have a consult with. Maybe have a couple of consultations. See who gives you time. See who answers all your questions. Or if they're going to wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, you know, answer for credit and you're done. They know, I have two, five minutes and you're done. Well, and I like what you said about well, the, about the, I like what you said about the aftercare, the, really the care that you provide from start to finish. If I were seeking that type of, uh, of, of care, if I was thinking that kind of, of, of surgery, that's what I would want. You know, I honest to God, I, I take care of my patients the way I would take care of a relative of mine, one of my own kids or a cousin or an aunt or uncle or, or no relative, because I just, that's the way I want to be taken care of. Yeah. I would imagine a lot of folks too are alone in this process. They don't have the support of their family. Are, but it's good to have support of somebody. And I feel when they ask you, if you have a friend or a relative or a spouse, a lot of people are still married, to bring them here and to keep you company during your time that you're here. Yeah. Help you with food, help you with bathroom, this, that, or just company. So if you have a friend that'll come, and once in a while they don't have a friend or somebody that'll come with them, but usually they do. And we encourage that to, for them to come. Right. So look at all, all doctors have websites. I would presume that some websites are a little exaggerated. They're put together by PR people. Or if someone works at a big hospital, a hospital PR department uh, puts together, they decide to go with a transgender business because it's lucrative business now for hospitals. Now that insurance pays for it. You know, I can tell you 10 years ago, you could hardly find a hospital to let us do surgery, to let us do transgender surgery. When I started doing this about 17, 18 years ago, it was very difficult for me to find a hospital that gave, would give me privileges, even though I was a well-trained surgeon. And some hospitals told me, oh, Dr. Lee, we know about you. You teach at the medical school and you're well-known and we'd love to have you, but not for that trans stuff, mm. not for that. And mm. I have letters to show that, you know, I have letters, very interesting letters that say, oh, you could create a scandal for us or for, this is a Catholic hospital, you could create a scandal for the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. You can't admit a transgender patient here for anything. You know, we, you take those elsewhere. I said, you know what? If you want to accept, that's my large, becoming a large part of my practice. If I can't bring my trans patients there for necessary surgery with approval and recommendations by their mental health specialists and everybody else, then I'm not bringing in my other patients. I'm not just going to bring my facelift patients in and you get a nice fee or a cash fee for that or cosmetic surgery. And you don't let me bring other people in where the surgery is psychologically even more important. Right. And I never worked there again. Hmm. That was like 15 years ago. Has that attitude changed with, with uh, hospitals such as yeah, those owned by the Catholic church? Certain hospitals know, especially Catholic hospitals, but most hospitals now want to have, they're looking for transgender surgeons and other doctors. Why? money because since obama's administration i was talking about before pushed the insurance companies most insurance companies now cover transgender surgery to some degree or another they all if they say they cover transgender surgery your policy then 
they at least will cover the genital reassignment. Some cover facial feminization, like the case by case tomorrow. Some cover breast surgery. Some don't. Some cover breast, not face. Some cover face, not breast. But more and more are covering everything. So it's more common for an insurance company to cover sex reassignment surgery than some yeah. of the others? Interesting. Yes. Yes. I mean, for a trans patient. Okay. Cover the, the, some of them will cover facial feminization surgery. Some will, some will cover breast augmentation. Other companies say, no, that's cosmetic surgery. You know, they don't, that's cosmetic. We're not paying for it. Some say the face is a cosmetic. It's not cosmetic. I mean, maybe the breast, you could, maybe they can make an argument, although we argue not that, that it's really important for them to feel feminine and have a real breast. But face is like crucial to the way they're, the way they're accepted by other people, the way other people relate to them and treat them well or mistreat them terribly. And even to the point where it's dangerous for them to be outed, yeah. depending on what kind of a crowd. How do you think a trans patient would have done well on January the 6th in Washington right. with that crowd, huh? Right. Think they're receptive? Right. Oh, they're the people that kill trans people. Right. Well, Dr. Lee, thank you so much for spending time with me and for giving all this information. It's fascinating. It's a pleasure, Greg. Nice to meet you. Hope to see you again. And that wraps up our hour. If you'd like to hear my full interview with Dr. Lee, it'll be available on our website at outbeatnews.com. There's a lot more detail in our conversation. So just go to the website and click show notes at the top of the page. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's right here and only on KRCB, the North Bay's NPR station. In the meantime, have a great week. Thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to Support for Outbreak Radio tonight on KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next.